Helene Olin joins us. She's a columnist for the Washington Post and has two great books that everybody should go out and buy, Pound Foolish and The Index Card. Happy New Year, Helene Olin. You were telling- Oh, Happy New Year to you. Yes, it's, it's, it's hard to believe it's 2020 and Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden are still writing from a super PAC on their checks. That's a joke that I just was toying with. That's a bad joke. That's how this year is going to be, bad jokes. Um, hello? I'm here. Yeah. Hey, you were saying that Australia, which is suffering terribly from climate change-induced fires, you were saying that they have a prime minister that's almost as bad as our president? Well, they have a, you know, and also a right-wing government, and their government has really refused to deal with climate change in any meaningful way, mostly because, and I should preface this by saying I don't always feel like I'm a real expert on the subject of the Australian government, but I know a bit about it, is both coal mining, coal mining is a fairly major business there. And um, that has been something of an issue, the same way it's been something of an issue in our country. And what made the Australian situation so fascinating is I think people know the background at this point. You know, basically an area of the country about the size of Belgium went up in flames. About half a billion, um, you know, wild animals have died so far. Um, You know, the fires have been going for a month on and off at this point. Um, This coming weekend is expected to be quite bad again. Mm -hmm. Um, You literally had scenes of people fleeing to the beaches um, where they they are more or less trapped. Um, And they had a government that was so incredibly responsible that their prime minister, I believe he was on vacation in Hawaii, and initially did not want to come back, which was just sort of staggering. You always think of that as like, Trumpian, but actually it turns out other countries have issues with um, uh, leaders who have some entitlement issues as well, apparently. And um, another one of their, um, or maybe it wasn't Hawaii, but it was somewhere he was on vacation and initially wouldn't come back. And then another um, character in the government was also on vacation, was also claiming he wouldn't come back for a time. And you know, people are just enraged. And apparently today, and this is, I guess, where uh, Australians have it over Americans, uh, the prime minister went out to meet with some fire victims, and they basically didn't act grateful. You know how the way people always sort of act grateful when, like, Trump throws, like, paper towels at yeah. them here in the States? Yeah. Yeah. There they started screaming at the guy and uh, basically told him what they thought of him. It was actually really remarkable. <laughs> so. Wow. That sounds un-American. Uh, it does sound very un-American, doesn't yeah. it? The thing with Australia, not to defend the conservatives down there, but can you have any effect on climate change unless America gets involved? Don't we produce like 25% of all the greenhouse gases? Is there any we point? Produce a, we, we produce a huge amount, um, and so do a bunch of other countries. So, I mean, it's not like Australia is going to do a lot on its own. On the other hand, the more that countries do it, the better, yeah. and you certainly can't not do anything about it. So what do you so think? So it's not really a defense to say, well, the United States won't do anything about it. If the United States is the only country not doing anything about it, we'd probably move it and act at some point. These people 
the billionaire class. And you have this great piece over at the Washington Post about how the billionaires are now deciding that they're the victims in all this. It's a great piece in how the decade of the billionaire victim. And you, it's a great piece about how people like Donald Trump and Stephen Schwartzman and even Mitt Romney, who isn't a billionaire, but they're, uh, they, they play the victim. Do they really believe that they're under siege, that, that they're being attacked by the government and the tax code and that life is unfair for them? Or is that just a negotiating It's always hard. In journalism, we have a thing where you have to say someone said he said, you know, says he he believes. I mean, I'm sorry. In journalism, we have a thing where you where we we write. You say someone says they believe because, of course, you never truly know what's in their heart. Uh But I have to say it's a pretty good scab if it's a scab. And I tend to think most people aren't running scabs like that. Well, it you, would seem to be a rather strange one to run if they were. Why would you want to whine on TV about how you have a billion dollars but you're being done wrong? By definition, you've kind of got to know you sound like a jerk. So my guess is if I had to bet, I would say most of these people legitimately believe they've been done wrong. So you write that. And st- if you think otherwise, I just, just flat out disagree with you. Right. Stephen Schwartzman, did he create BlackRock or Blackstone, one of the big hedge funds? He created one of the big ones, and, you know, he's well-known, um, you know, guy. He, he bitched and moaned about Bernie Sanders a few months ago, if he's the person I think he is, you know, claiming that, you know, he wished Bernie didn't exist. Right. I mean, these people don't have any real control. I mean, I think... If you would ask me what I think goes on is, unlike most of us who are surrounded by people who will tell us when we're being jerks, when you're worth several billion dollars or even just a couple of hundred million, people generally cheer you on. It's pretty easy to get surrounded by sycophants at that point. And so you sort of lose your radar after a while. Right. And and I'm sure that these people pontificate around their dining room table and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the carried interest loophole for hedge funds, which I never really understood, but there was talk of getting rid of it or closing it. Even Donald Trump, you write, had suggested that when he got elected president, he would get rid of the carried interest loophole. President Obama in 2010 was talking about it. And what did Stephen Schwartzman say? He compared it to the Nazi invasion of Poland, and this was in 2010. And I believe, if I'm remembering right, he did it at a nonprofit dinner or meeting of some sort. Um, Somebody called up New York Magazine and told them all about it. New York Magazine wrote about it. Scandal erupted. Um, Schwarzman apologized. But clearly he didn't mean it very much because we still don't have a carried interest. The loophole has never been closed. Trump campaigned on it. Yeah. Now, he's, like I remember Lloyd Blankfein, who used to be the head of Goldman Sachs, he once said, we do the work of God here. And was that taken out of context? Didn't he later say that was a joke? He was being... He claimed it was a joke. It probably was. Yeah. I mean, the guy does have a sense of humor. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him that. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was still kind of a dumb remark to make. Okay. Helene Olin, in uh, ten words or less... What is the carried 
interest loophole? Let me try. Let me try. Can I try? You can try. Okay. So <clears throat> I manage a hedge fund, and there's uh, I take money off the top every year. Let's say I take 2%, and that's should be taxed as a, as a, I don't know, what is it? What is the carried interest loop on? <laughs> what is it? It's basically, it should be taxed as income, right? Yeah. If you're taking 2%, you assume it's income. The carried interest loophole allows that to be, car- to be, to be charged at the lower capital, um, capital gains rate. Okay. So that people pay. Uh, so presumably, if you are eligible for, if you receive carried interest, you're at the maximum income. Um, you're paying the most income tax, you know, at the highest bracket that exists. And so, in theory, if you were charged, if you were had to credit it as income, you would be paying higher taxes on it. Capital gains is a lower tax rate for wealthy people than the income tax rate. So it's basically a loophole that allows them to skirt. To um, get away without paying, with paying less money right. in tax. Let me see, because this this stuff, everybody's eyes glaze over, and this is why they're able to steal all our money. So let me just see if I understand it. Capital gains means if I bought stock or I bought a house and I sell it, the money I make, the profit that I earn, would be the capital gains. Correct. Correct. All right, so I buy IBM at $2 a share, I sell it at $10 a share, I make $8 a share, I have an $8 capital gain, and that would be taxed, that would be the capital gains tax. And they say in the tax code that that should be taxed at a lower rate than, say, your salary. Right. I'm getting this right? You're getting this right. I mean... It's it's a long term capital gains. This is twenty percent rate. Twenty percent. The the feeling is that if you sell your stock or your home and you make a profit, that profit should be. Well, t- there's a differences. I mean, it starts getting really convoluted, and you probably don't want to get into this on the radio. But essentially, for instance, with a home, several hundred thousand dollars is excluded, provided you reinvest and buy another in another home within a few year period. So, I w- home is probably not the best example to use. But a stock is certainly is a good example. And again, half the population doesn't own stocks, so they don't have any capital gains from stocks by definition. But um, you know, this is um, the thought is that it encourages investment, and that's why the capital gains tax is lower than the in, the tax on income. Whether that's true or not is so, is a conversation for another time. I myself don't really believe it. Yeah, but let me let me stop, let, let me. I'm going to interrupt you. I want to ask you a question. They say they're so they're lowering the tax rate on capital gains to encourage investments. But when you go on E Trade and buy a share of IBM and then sell it and get a capital gains, that's not, you're not investing in IBM, are you? Of course you're investing in IBM. You've just put money in IBM. No, no, you're buying this. It's an investment in IBM. I mean, you might not like it, but it's an investment in IBM. No, 
No, it isn't. You're if buying nobody stock. Bought it, there'd be no investment in IBM. Of course it is. No, the, 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 the investment was made when they had the IPO. Now they're just trading that stock on the open market. IBM doesn't benefit if I if I personally buy a share of IBM. That doesn't help IBM, does it? It's market capitalization. Oh, that's true. And okay. I'm, I'm going to, okay. You're right. Okay. Should we move on? Because I, I thought yeah. I could, I, I thought, I thought I could figure out what the carried interest loophole was, but I don't think I have the capacity to do it today with my cold. Let's, let's stay with the, the victimization. So Schwartzman says that, uh, he. Yeah, I mean, my point is, is I'm going to, I'm going to take over the conversation. Good. How about that? Good. I mean, my, my point is, wasn't to talk about carried interest, really. The right. point of the piece was to look back at the previous decade and say, what was one of the big trends? And there's a lot of trends we could talk about. Um, for instance, you know, the lack of investment in, you know, American life is a major trend. You know, our infrastructure is falling apart. We don't fund schools. Kids, you know, have graduate with mounds of debt from college because we don't invest in public colleges and so on down the line. But one of the trends that really jumped out at me that I felt was not getting its due was what in a decade of, you know, grift after grift after grift, what I believed was maybe the biggest grift of them all, which was this idea of billionaire and multimillionaire as victims of society. You know, and when we all became victims, you know, remember, you remember that whole thing in the 80s and 90s, I was talking, we all becoming victims. As it turns out, they turned out to believe they were the biggest victims of them all. And over and over again, over the course of the decade, you saw people coming forward to say, I've been victimized. And Mm -hmm. it really started with Schwarzman, I felt, which wasn't to say it wasn't going on before, but people generally kept it behind closed doors. So, for instance, the Tea Party, which was funded in large part by the Koch brothers, you know, kind of tried to hide its sources of funding for a long time and tried to look legit. This was, Schwarzman came out and, you know, sort of loudly and proudly said, I've been done wrong. Right. And, you know, to me, that makes him patient zero of our decade of billionaire whiners. And, you know, and then you saw it happen over and over again. You know, Mitt Romney in 2012 told an uh, an audience full of multi, you know, fairly wealthy donors. I don't know if they were all multi-billionaires and billionaires. um, You know, that 40% of the population was takers and felt entitled to, get this one, food. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, and there was an uproar. And But this just kept happening over and over and over again. And at some point, we elected one of our billionaire whiners president, that would be Donald Trump, who is, you know, whines nonstop about how he's been done wrong by everybody, pretty much. And then you have this whole class of whiners now, billionaire, you know, victim whiners, who are, you know, whining about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because apparently now you can't even get elected and just complain about this stuff. Right. You know, right. without without triggering the this these delicate sensitivities. And you know, now we have things like last year both Davos and Milk and Global, you know, which are two of the big investment conferences, really sounded like, you know, these, you know, encounter sessions for multimillionaires where they all, you know, sort of communed together. It was like, you know, how could they be saying these terrible things about us? You know, not really wanting to open up and admit that, you know, their role in this vast inequality was sort of causing this reaction. 
So it was sort of fascinating to me and how seriously they get taken by parts of the press. And then you just see it sort of mushrooming all over the place. The Sackler family is whining that their, you know, their social reputation is suffering. I mean, this literally really happened where, you know, they've been saying, you know, we can't believe this has happened to our reputation and our children are suffering. Never mind those 400,000 people who died, you know, because of, of opioid uh, abuse and overprescriptions. You know, we all know who the real victims were. They were the Sacklers. And... It's just kind of stunning, and I felt, you know, the time came to give it its due as a trend. Yeah, and this piece really took off around the world, and what what was the reaction that you received? I, I can't tell you exactly what the reaction is, except that I can tell you it's still getting retweeted almost two weeks later, or a week and a half later, I should say, um, fairly consistently. I still get email from people. Um, it made the Australian press this week, um, and I figure they got a lot of other stuff to worry about, too, so I thought that was fairly um, interesting. And, um, you, know, it's, you know, it's been kind of, you know, a piece about how we live now, I guess. And I guess it's sort of sad to me in a way that, it, you know, it clearly resonated the way it did. You know, piece it, like that, you want a gazillion people to write you and say, gee, this isn't a trend at all. What are you thinking? And, and we have people reading this who aren't billionaires, but identifying with their plight, who feel they're being unfairly ridiculed. Right. And then you get the other. Right. And that's the other thing you get, which is, you know, people writing to me saying, you know, you know you're, you're jealous of the billionaires. That's my favorite one. Um, you, know, you wouldn't be writing this if you weren't jealous. Or, you know, you know, you don't understand, you know, you're an idiot. These people are, you know, helping society. And without them, there would be no jobs. Um, seemingly unaware that in the 1950s, the top tax rate was 90%. Right. And a lot of jobs or most jobs probably start with government funding or government research. Well, before you go, you have a piece entitled, A Pain-Inducing Tilted Toilet Sounds Far-Fetched. But no wonder so many people were livid. Tell me about this toilet that they've... Uh... Um, this very strange story out of Britain um, about somebody taking a patent out that has not been approved yet. So on a toilet that's tilted so that if you sit on it for more than five minutes, it gets increasingly uncomfortable. And they try to, they're trying to pitch it at workplaces. Um, now, was this a put-on? You kind of intimate Nobody that it... seems to know the correct answer to that question. Right. right. Um, you know, when I wrote the piece, it looked like it was possible because the website was down. Now mm -hmm. the website is back up. And nobody really knows the answer to this except to say that there is indeed a real patent on this. So if it's a, you know, if it's, if it's you know, a, if it's a prank, it's a good one. Um, that's for sure. But what I thought was more interesting than the question of whether it's true or not true was that almost immediately almost everybody believed it and, you know, was fairly enraged. But at the same time, I thought people believe it because they've been treated so badly for so long. Right. You know, that of course it wouldn't occur to them that this could possibly not be true because people sort of think their employers would do this to them. So I thought that was fairly horrifying. 
Yeah. And then, of course, I started looking into the history of toilet access at work and discovered what, what to me was the most fascinating thing at all was until the 1970s, you know, unless you had a union fighting for you, you had no guaranteed access whatsoever. And even after the law changed in the early 70s to say workplaces had to have bathrooms, believe it or not, they did not prior to the early 70s, wow. the law was written in such a way that employers didn't actually have to give their employees access to a bathroom which turned out to be a real problem because, believe it or not, employers felt impelled not to do that. Some employers didn't give access. And somebody wrote a book about this, um, which I joke, I was joking with a friend, it was potentially one of the most important books ever written um, mm-hmm. that you don't know existed. And as soon as it was published, an uproar came up, occurred, and the law was actually changed so that employers not only had to give, have to have a bathroom, but they had to offer their employees access to it. Um, whether that's done or not, you still hear horror stories and, you know, and you can do ex- their exposés done fairly regularly of places like poultry plants and what. Right. Whatnot. Michael Bloomberg apparently thinks people, you write, spend too much time going to the bathroom. That yeah, cuts into and the... yeah, and you know, considers it a waste of time, and says if you want to get ahead at work, you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't go to the bathroom, which begs the question of what you should be doing. But yeah. um, you know, it's just this from a man of, who's um, pissing away a hundred million dollars on a run for the presidency. Right. So. so anyway, so that that's what I worked on the past week. Fantastic. Like Helene Olin is a columnist for the Washington Post. You should read her. Every day over at the Washington Post, pick up her two books, Pound Foolish and the Index Card. What is your Twitter handle? It's Helene Olin, right? It, it, yeah, it's very simple. It's at Helene Olin, and um, that's the best way. And my email address is on there if you want to write me. Fantastic. Uh, I keep it on my bio. Fantastic. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? Sure. Thank you.